The virus has changed our world. Empty streets, stalled economies, death and suffering. But it has also improved the air. Thanks to coronavirus shutdowns that have devastated the economy, environmental changes are now happening at an unprecedented rate. Fewer people on the roads, skies over New Delhi this week turned from hazy brown to a rare blue. In Paris, air pollution is down 46%, 19% in Sydney. And here in the U.S., with traffic down in major cities by 40% or more, we are breathing 30% better atmosphere than we were when this began. My name is Grant Oliphant, and welcome to Stronger Than This. This is a special podcast series of candid conversations about living in the time of COVID-19. It is not our regular We Can Be season. Please stay tuned for that later this year. The Stronger Than This series will feature new episodes each week with people who are dealing with issues on the front lines of this crisis as they share firsthand experiences, challenges, victories, and what they see for the long road ahead. And we understand that many are not feeling strong right now. And the intent of this title is not to make anyone feel badly for that. Our hope is that the strength of community can help all of us get through what has happened, what is happening, and what is yet to come. It's less an individual statement than it is about our collective spirit, which I firmly believe is stronger than the challenge that we're encountering. Today, our guest is someone who I've admired for a long time for the caliber of his intellect and the way in which he talks about issues, Dr. John Graham, a senior scientist with the Boston-based Clean Air Task Force, which works to prevent catastrophic climate change by driving technology innovation, policy change, and realistic solutions. John grew up in the rural dairy farm community of Glen Falls, New York. He holds a Ph.D. in atmospheric science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and an A.B. in chemistry from Harvard University. Not shoddy credentials there, John. The Clean Air Task Force has a team of air quality experts stationed around the country. And John joins us today from his current home base in the San Francisco Bay Area. John, thanks so much for being here. Sure, it's my pleasure. You know, I think until a few weeks ago, people would not have thought about air quality as a frontline issue in dealing with a pandemic. And yet we've seen it come up in at least a couple of ways since the crisis has hit. One large category of ways having to do with health, and we'll get to that, and one having to do with just how our felt and visual landscape has changed in an era where People are staying at home. We've seen air quality issues come to the forefront of the national and international conversation, actually, in this way, partly through widely shared images showing the starkly different before and after skylines of cities around the globe that have seen a dramatic drop in air pollution. We're seeing people, I think, suddenly appreciating blue skies, suddenly appreciating quiet, suddenly feeling that their air is breathable. And you can almost feel this wistfulness being expressed over the internet about, gee, we should go back to that. And then you have this other group of people who say, that's not realistic. We need to get back to dirty skies because that's productivity and success. You as an air scientist, how do you read all of this? Should we be viewing this as an exceptional moment that should be telling us something? Or is that just a poetic overstatement on the part of people who are experiencing it? 
This is definitely an exceptional moment because it's rare that you get a time when, you know, you decrease a very large sector of pollution by 50%. That doesn't happen just on its own. It is remarkable. And we can imagine that this is something we could achieve every day if we had a different fuel system. So if we weren't burning fossil fuels for transportation sources, if we were running electric vehicles, we would have the same kind of pollution reduction every day. And there's really not a good reason why we couldn't move in that direction. We're trying to move in that direction. Mm. Let's talk about the health dimensions of this for a moment, because there have been studies now that point towards a connection between air pollution of various kinds and both exposure rates to COVID-19 and mortality from it. I think Harvard University was, the School of Public Health was pretty blunt in saying People in in high pollution areas are more likely to die from COVID-19. And a report, I believe it was done by the National Resource Defense Council, found that in places like Michigan, Louisiana, Colorado, and Allegheny County, areas that suffer from a density of major air pollution and air pollution sources also have relatively high rates of COVID deaths. I'd love for you to talk to us about what this correlation means and how we can think about it in the context of the air pollution problem that we have here. My expertise is not at all in public health. So all I can say is that I've read a lot of the studies that do show that air pollution exacerbates all kinds of respiratory conditions and can lead to premature mortality. It's not my field, but it doesn't surprise me knowing what I've read and and knowing that the whole reason we have ambient air quality standards is to protect the health of the public. It's clear that if you have worse pollution, if you have things which will adversely affect your ability to breathe, then you are introduced with an infection that has respiratory implications. I think it would make sense that those two things can be interrelated, but that's just that yeah. seems common sense. Right, right. I think an interesting question, though, for you as an air scientist is, are you finding that people in the media are taking your work more seriously or that policymakers are paying more attention to your work because they see a correlation now between dirty air and a concern that is on the public's mind every day? I'm not sure that that's really happening broadly. I mean, certainly there's interest. This is wishful thinking on my part, is that what you're telling I, I, me? Personally... Yeah. At least, you know, from my perspective, what I've seen from reading the news and seeing newscasts and talking to people in my community, people aren't really making those connections, even though it's being covered in the media, because there are other things, I think, that are more pressing. So for a lot of people, they're concerned, you know, because they've been furloughed, they've lost their income. Right. You know, it it would be great. And I would love that if people really drew those connections and took those to heart. But fundamentally, I think people are more concerned about where that next meal is coming. Are they going to be able to make their rent? So like, you know, before COVID, I think there's a lot of other pressing needs that tend to overshadow some of these other important issues. Are there ways in which you can imagine us taking the lessons of this moment and applying them to the back to work world that will eventually be reentering? so that we are more protective of air quality in that world. One of the things that I think has changed is that people are maybe spending a little more time with themselves outdoors, so going for walks, Mm -hmm. which they might not have had the opportunity or time to do in the past. And so we probably are experiencing the beauty of nature and just being outside. And I'm hoping that people will recognize that when you're outside doing these activities that you're really 
seeing less pollution in the air. So, you know, depending on where you are, that, that'll be less obvious. But if you're in, say, a, a big metropolitan area like Los Angeles that is well known for its smoggy days, I think people are, are realizing now when they walk outside, we're not seeing that kind of smog anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping that they will take that away from this experience and realize that we do have the ability to reduce emissions, which would allow us to enjoy living that much more because the technologies exist. It's just a question of having the will to either drive less or to drive an electric vehicle versus, say, a gasoline-powered vehicle. Given that there are ways in which we can tackle those pollutants in a time when the economy is fully and robustly going through technology and, and as you said, use of different modalities of transportation, how do you think about the federal government relaxing environmental standards for manufacturers precisely during a crisis like this, which is about a respiratory disease, and we're relaxing standards on behaviors that contribute to respiratory illness. Yeah, I I think that's frustrating, but it's not just uniquely now that they're relaxing those kinds of standards. The federal government under the current administration has been moving to roll back all kinds of different regulations that have been put in place to improve fuel efficiency in motor vehicles, to lower the footprint of carbon emissions. There's air toxic emissions that the administration is trying to roll back. All these things are happening even before we have this pandemic. So it's like adding insult to injury where they're really doing their best to minimize the improvements that we've been Mm -hmm. making in this country and weakening uh, some of the efforts that we've had that should have led to this kind of future you know, where we have an emission profile that we're currently seeing to some extent under this pandemic. So the federal infrastructure was moving in the right direction. And now we have the hand of government pulling things back. And I think it's it's frustrating to see that happen. Let's talk for a moment about Allegheny County and what you've seen in your work here. Um, in some ways, it's an ongoing version of the jackhammering. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to say that. <laughs> In some ways, it's an ongoing narrative. There's been a tendency to pit air quality and environmental protection almost against jobs in the economy. So the reaction of some people, particularly on the industry side, is, okay, we'll get over it. You live in a place that has river valleys and the country needs steel, and this is where we make it, so just deal with it. It's part of the price of life. I would love to get your reaction to that sort of base argument, because we hear it so often, and it and becomes such a frame for policymaking, but you're a scientist who actually gets to see how this stuff works. Are there better solutions than this either-or choice that we're presented with? I don't know that it's really an either-or. We haven't stopped generating power, right? The locations of where that power is coming from is by and large the same facilities, but we've learned how to reduce the emissions. We've learned to control the processes. And certainly some industries are dirty industries, but that doesn't mean there aren't ways that we can continue to improve the operations and and how we go about making the things that need to be made. For example, in December of 2018, there was a fire that knocked out some of the control equipment at one of the facilities in, in Pittsburgh, and we saw an increase in pollution. In the beginning of 2020, even before the, the pandemic, there were levels of SO2 that I think were much lower than we had seen in the past in the community. And I don't think production shut down. I think they just did a better job of reducing those emissions coming from 
facilities. So I don't think we have to have a choice that we can have polluting industries or no industry. I think you can still have industry and just have practices that minimize uh, their environmental impact. Are you able to get a sense for what's happening with Allegheny County's air right now and anything we should be thinking about as we navigate coming out of this COVID period? Well, I can say that, you know, in looking at some of the data, carbon monoxide, which over half of the emissions in Allegheny County of carbon monoxide come from from traffic, from on-road sources. And we have seen a reduction, especially in rush hour, of that particular pollutant. I think that people should realize that from a personal standpoint, that you are driving around may be your biggest impact that you're having on a day-to-day basis on the environment as far as an emission standpoint. Mm-hmm. And so to the extent that you can reduce those trips, I know for myself, I used to go to the grocery store three times a week, and now I'm going once every 10 days. I'm, right. I'm making right. do with that. I don't really have to go as frequently. So it's just this new way of living has shown me that I don't really have to be as wasteful, I guess, uh, from that standpoint. There, there are ways to go about doing everything I need to do while minimizing my impact on the environment. We also haven't really talked about climate change in the context of this. And we've been, I think, going the past few years through a period of retrenchment around climate change policy, particularly in the United States. Is there anything to be learned in the midst of this pandemic about the climate and the importance of that as an issue to be paying attention to, even as we're trying to figure out this pandemic crisis? That's a a harder issue because climate, of course, is a very long-term problem. But I think that we're seeing that we can function without driving around as much and power demand has gone down. So there are some major sources of climate pollution that we are just not emitting right now. The U.S. has been measuring carbon dioxide now for decades in Hawaii, and it's been a way to keep track of the ever- increasing levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. And we've been tracking that now for decades. And you can see that very clearly how after the Industrial Revolution, this increase in CO2 has just been marching onward and upward. So I'm hoping, you know, especially if this lasts long enough, like if we were to maintain this for another couple months, I think it would be very clear that you would see an interruption in that cycle that's been very clear over the last many decades. It just will have to be if we really are reducing our global footprint, it will have to show up in that data record. And I think that that will be a a clear way to demonstrate that connection between man and the environment. Because some of the resistance is like, well, it's not really man-made. Like the, the things that are happening, like we're not really contributing to it. That'll be a really direct way of showing that, in fact, when we reduce our activities very radically, if we can show that that has also reduced the concentrations of some gases in the atmosphere like carbon dioxide, it's a way to demonstrate that we really do have that direct influence on on the climate system. John, is there anything that's on your mind these days that you wish the rest of us would be paying attention to beyond what we've been talking about? Well, sort of related to what we've been talking about, one of the more important things that the federal government does is set air quality standards. It's maybe the most important thing that the government can do because all the regulations that happen are in response to trying to meet air quality standards. So the Mm. progress that we've made in the United States over the last 50 years since the Clean Air Act came to be in 1970 has happened because we've set air quality standards to say this is a level which is acceptable for pollution in the atmosphere. And 
when we don't meet that level, then there are mechanisms set in place that help us reach those goals. And absent those guideposts, nothing is really done because people don't mm-hmm. recognize it as necessarily a problem. And what's happening right now is that we're going through the process of revising the standard for fine particles, the standard for ozone, and there's been a resistance in the current administration against focusing on the science. They're trying to downplay all the more recent science and trying to suggest that air pollution really isn't that big of a problem. And we've really done everything we need to do, and there's nothing more to be done. And I think that if you look at the conclusions that other agencies across the globe, be it the World Health Organization or our our colleagues to the north in Environment Canada, they're coming to very different conclusions about what levels of air pollution are harmful, and they're setting their standards accordingly. So they're much, much more conservative than what we have here in the U.S. And so I think that we really need to focus on the science and understanding that the science is sound and that we need to improve the the levels of the standards so we really can minimize the the pollution that we're breathing. The next time there's another respiratory pandemic, maybe we won't be talking about the fact that there's this adverse interaction between high pollution levels in the air and mortality from a pandemic because maybe we'll not have that problem anymore. I think that this is such a theme of our age that we're witnessing attacks on science as a tool for decision-making. Are you distressed by that? And do you see a practical way for us to get back to making decisions based on good science? Yeah, it does concern me. And I don't necessarily think it's only science. I think there's a war on expertise generally. You know, it used to be that, you know, the doctor, for example, you would trust the doctor. Now people are always second-guessing everything. The common person decides that they're the expert. And so it downplays what the whole point of having expertise is. (laughs) I mean, there's a sense that that each individual knows what's best and can make all the decisions without the need to follow what the science says or whatever the discipline is. There's a move away from this trust of expertise. I think that's huge. We see it so often these days in public dialogue that, you know, I could just, if you and I were debating over the internet, I would just tell you, well, that's your opinion. And my opinion is, and I may have absolutely no basis for my opinion, but I would position that as equivalent to your 20 plus years of education in this field and then 30 years of of working in it. I think it's tough given that bias to have government really lean in and make decisions based on science, but I think it's an important thing for us to remember. I want to thank you, John, first of all, for making the time to do this and to do it while there is a jackhammer beating up the street outside your window. That is a noble, noble level of commitment. The things that really resonate with me as I think about what we just spoke about, we started by focusing on what I call this poetic or or scenic moment, you know, people standing in Delhi can suddenly see the Himalayas and people in, in LA can suddenly smell the ocean and see air that they haven't been able to see through for a long time. That's an extraordinary and beautiful thing. But as you point out, and I think this is an exceptionally important point, what the pandemic is illustrating is that these are human-made phenomenon. And we have the capacity to change them through policy, through technology, and through behavior. I think that's a perfect place to end this conversation. It expresses exactly what we should be learning 
even as we struggle with the reality that some of these air quality issues are also potentially connected to the crisis of the virus itself and the lessons that we need to learn on that front as well. John Graham, thank you so much for taking the time, and we really appreciate you being here. Thank you for inviting me to talk. You know, this is my life work, so I, I love to talk about air pollution and solutions. You know, hopefully, moving forward, we will continue down the path of cleaner air and brighter skies, and it will really be a sunny future for us. Fabulous, John. Thank you. Thank you.